So obviously today we are finishing this short but really, really powerful book, the book of Habakkuk. And this book for me, to be honest with you, has just been so helpful to study and to learn about together with you as a church body because in this book, the book of Habakkuk, we have this prophet of God, this man of God who is literally navigating through what we could probably only describe as a crisis of faith. He's navigating through some significant questions that have really rocked him to the core of his faith and made him wonder, how do I continue to move forward? Where is God in the midst of all that I'm going through and all that I'm seeing in the world right now? A faith crisis happens to a follower of the Lord when this occurs, when what we know about God or think we know seems to contradict what we see in our circumstances. So so that's when a crisis of faith can happen. There's this disconnect going on where we're saying, hold on, I know God to be A, B, and C, and yet what I see in my life or what I see in the world in front of me does not seem consistent with what I know about God. And all of a sudden, that creates some really deep questions. Wait, who are you, God? Or what are you doing, God? Or where are you, God? And that was the place that Habakkuk found himself in a couple of weeks ago when we started this book. Okay, literally a few thousand years ago, but for us, a couple of weeks ago in chapter 1. And again, we've been able to now kind of journey with this prophet through this crisis of faith. And now we're at the point of the story where we see some resolution. We get to see Habakkuk now sort of on the other side of the crisis of faith. But what I mean by that is, Not on the other side of the trial, because he's actually still not even there yet. But he's on the other side of the doubt and the skepticism and the wrestling with God. And we find the prophet now at the start of chapter 3 in a place where he has been able to square his circumstances with the character of God. This much is evident by what Pastor Ryan just read for us. Chapter 3 begins with a noticeable shift from what has come before. If you've been with us for the previous two sermons, you'll notice that this shift has taken place. What we just read is, according to verse 1 now, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And we'll just stop verse 1 there because nobody knows how to pronounce that other word anyhow, right? But now we're at a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. The first two chapters of this book, if you'll remember were a dialogue between the prophet and God. Now, I can summarize the whole thing for us in two minutes or less. Now, seriously, you could set a timer. I could do this in two minutes or less. You guys ready? I'm on the clock. Here we go. Go. There's four movements in the first two chapters. Movement number one is Habakkuk's complaint. He looks out at Judah, where he lives, and he sees that the land is marked by violence, oppression, evil, and wickedness. And he says to the Lord, what's up? Why are you sitting back idly while evil abounds? Movement number two, the Lord's response. God says, I'm doing a work. I'm raising up the Babylonians as an instrument of judgment, and they're going to march into Judah and clean your clock. Movement number three. This is Habakkuk's second complaint. What? 
doesn't make sense, Lord. How are you going to raise up a nation that's more wicked than we are to come and judge us for our sins? Movement number four, the Lord says, don't worry about that. They're going to get their fair share of judgment too. So what you need to do is you need to live by faith and not by sight and trust in me and my plan and recognize that I rule and reign over everything as I'm seated in my holy temple in heaven. Two minutes or less, right? Stop the clock right there. So that's the dialogue that happened. That was the back and forth that went on. That was the epiphany now that the prophet received from the Lord. And then everything shifts for Habakkuk. As chapter three begins, you got to see this. As chapter three begins, he's done with questions. As chapter three begins, he's out of complaints. As chapter three begins, what we find from the prophet is a man who has resigned himself to trusting in the plan and the promises of his God. This much is clear from the beginning of his prayer found in verse two. And this is the petition of the prayer. It's just verse two. This is the thing that he comes to God to ask now, and it is shocking in light of where we've been so far. Let's look at verse two again. Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So he begins and he says, Lord, I've heard the report of you. What report is that? Well, based on what he's going to pray in verses 3 through 15, it seems as if he's referring to the stories that he's heard of God delivering and rescuing his people from mighty enemies in the past. So he's saying, you know what, I've heard some stories before. I've heard the report of the way that you've delivered your people in the past. And then he says, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Now in the Old Testament, the word fear, especially when fear is connected to God, oftentimes does not mean what we think of when we use the word fear. Oftentimes, fear in connection to the Lord, like when the scriptures say to fear the Lord, it's not about living in terror per se, to where you almost can't even move or do anything because you're so afraid. Rather, the idea of fearing the Lord in the Old Testament has more to do with the idea of acknowledging God for who he is, that he is God, that he is sovereign and in control, in control and ruling and reigning over all things and then responding appropriately to who he is. That is what it looks like to fear the Lord. So it carries the idea in the Old Testament of living your life with reverence for God, living your life in submission to God. Because again, it's an acknowledgement that you're God, I am not, you're in control, I am not, and you are good, therefore you just get to call the shots and I am here to follow. Now, notice here though that the word fear is not connected directly to the Lord. The word fear is connected to the work of the Lord. He says, your work, O Lord, do I fear. Now this is a reference back to the work that he talked about that God was doing in chapter 1, verse 5. Here's Habakkuk 1.5. The Lord said in response to Habakkuk's first complaint, he said, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded 
for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And what was that work? Well, again, as we've seen, the work that God was going to do is he was saying, listen, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to come and to judge Judah for her sin. And then I am going to judge Babylon for her sin after I do that. And so the prophet now says that he fears this work of the Lord, meaning that he sees this work as coming from God, and therefore he submits to it. And in fact, it's, it's even more than that. He doesn't just submit to the work. He actually, in the next expression, he invites the plan of God. No longer is he trying to find another plan or questioning the plan of God. He's actually going to invite the very plan of God to happen. Look at the invitation. He says, in the midst of the years, revive it. Referring to the work of God. In the midst of the years, make it, God's work, known. What is he saying? Well, up to this point, Habakkuk is really the only one who knows about God's plan. God revealed it to Habakkuk. And so Habakkuk's saying, okay, in this season, in the midst of the years right now, would you please make your plan known? Would you help everybody to see and understand what you're doing, namely by bringing your plan to pass, bring this about, so that everybody here knows that God is at work? What a massive shift. Again, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, or if you're familiar with the book of Habakkuk, this is, this is huge where he's moved. Before, again, he was in a place where he was questioning God, questioning the character of God, questioning the goodness of God, questioning the wisdom of God. He couldn't make sense of things. And now, instead of questioning the plan of God, he's inviting the plan of God. God, you, you do your work. In fact, Bring your work in here so that everybody can see and understand what you are about. So he's inviting God's plan in. But with one last request, he says, yet in wrath, remember mercy. I love that. It's a scary thing that he's inviting God to do. It's a scary thing that God declared he would do. I am going to send the superpower of your day and age, Babylon who are not nice people, okay? They come in and they love violence and I'm going to send them into Judah to bring judgment on the Holy Land. That's terrifying. And yet the prophet Habakkuk knows enough about God to know that even as God brings judgment, God also ushers in mercy. Because God's plan always includes the salvation of of his people. From Genesis to Revelation, God's plan always includes the salvation of his people. So Habakkuk here could petition the Lord to extend mercy to his people even as he brings judgment through Babylon. And guess what? That's exactly what God did. After Babylon came into Judah and brought many of the people of Judah captive back to Babylon, people like Daniel and his friends in the book of Daniel. Captivity in Babylon lasted 70 years. And at the end of those 70 years, the Medo-Persian Empire 
rises up. You could read about this in the book of Daniel. And they overthrow Babylon and upend the kingdom of Babylon. And then God brings his people back to the promised land. And they rebuild the walls and they rebuild the temple. And there's this bringing back of God's people to the Holy Land. Now again, we need to take note that what we're looking at here in chapter 3 is a totally different prayer than what Habakkuk began with. At the beginning of his crisis of faith, he was asking, why God and where are you God? But now he knows that God has a plan. He knows that God is good and that's enough for him. In verses 3 through 15, the prayer changes a little bit. And all of a sudden, Habakkuk is going to use some incredibly poetic and imaginative language to describe God as the deliverer of his people. Let's read these verses again. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. So notice God is on the move here in verse 3. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw saw you and writhed. The raging rivers swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Now, There's debate about what Habakkuk is referring to here in this beautiful kind of poem that he offers to the Lord in prayer. I'm inclined to think that what Habakkuk is describing here, what what the report that he had heard about the Lord is, referring back uh, back to chapter three, verse two, is he's describing when the Lord had come and brought his people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. And I think that there's some evidence of that language here in these verses. Habakkuk here is reflecting back on God's past faithfulness to his people. When he delivered them from slavery and then defeated their enemies in the promised land as a way of building up his courage and his faith in this present crisis on the eve of Babylonian invasion. Here's a few clues that might indicate that Habakkuk is in fact reflecting on God's deliverance from Egypt. In verse 3, we read that God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. These are regions that are south of Israel. Egypt, of course, is in the south of Israel. And the picture there in verse 3 is that God is coming into this region 
as a warrior to deliver his people. In verse 5, there's reference to pestilence and plague that are going out with the Lord as he delivers his people. Of course, those could be references to the ten plagues that fell on Egypt. The many references here to rivers and raging waters could refer to when God parted the Red Sea and then brought those waves back down on the Egyptian army as they tried to follow God's people through the Red Sea. Or also when God parted the River Jordan for his people. In verse 11, look what it says. It says, The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. The the, the reference there reminds us certainly of Joshua chapter 10 in verses 12 through 14. When God's people were in battle against the kings of the Amorites and God actually caused the sun to stand still in the day while his people defeated their enemies. But regardless of exactly what Habakkuk is referring to with all of this poetic language, verse 13 is the real key of this section and I want us to look more closely at it. Here's what he says to the Lord in prayer. He says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. The report that Habakkuk had heard about his God was a report that announced that God delivered his people from their enemies that God had gone out for their salvation. And if that much is true, then Habakkuk could face anything. If the God that he was praying to, if the God that he followed, if the God that he worshiped was a God who said, you know what? I always march out to deliver my people. I will never abandon my people. And if his God is the same God who years before Habakkuk's lifetime had gone and removed his people who were slaves under Pharaoh from the most powerful kingdom of that era, why in the world would he doubt that God could do it again in his day and age? And so this is the key to Habakkuk. My God, the God of of Israel, is a God who delivers his people, who works for their salvation. Therefore, I can face anything. And friend, may I remind you this morning, That the same God who came from the south to deliver his people from Pharaoh in Egypt. And the same God who ultimately judged Babylon and delivered his people out of their grip. Is the same God who went out for your salvation and my salvation. The Apostle Paul tells us that God, this is Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God came out to deliver us from our sins and he took us out of the kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of misery, a kingdom of death, and he transferred us into the kingdom of his son through forgiving our sins. So like Habakkuk, who sits here and he looks back in the past at God's faithfulness and his salvation that he brought for his people to give him courage in his present crisis, you and I can look to the cross and to the empty tomb for strength to carry on in our current crises too. 
if he died for our sins at the cross, and he did, and if he trampled death underfoot through his resurrection, and he did, will he not see us through every single trial and crisis that we face? I mean, how could he not? This is who God is. This is his character from beginning to end. He always goes out to work for the salvation of his people. And so Habakkuk sees that. Habakkuk has moved now in this book from a place of saying, God, I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't even know if I can continue to believe to now being in a place where he says, God, I know enough about who you are. And I've seen so many examples of your faithfulness in the past that I can't help but continue to trust in the present. And I'm going to move forward in faith. Now, in light of God's track record in the past, we see this faith response in the present. We already got a glimpse of it in verse 2, because as I said before, he was not wanting the plan of God. Now he's inviting it. But we see this faith response even more clearly in the remaining verses. Here's what he says in verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Now what's going on here? Well, it's hard to know exactly what's going on. Some scholars actually think that maybe at this point in the prayer, Habakkuk is literally hearing the Babylonian army marching on Judah. And so he's filled with terror. He's describing himself here as somebody who's literally shaken to the core. Uh, Somebody who's overwhelmed in the moment. He's trembling with fear. We're not sure if that's true or not. It could be that they're actually there at the doors. Or it could just be that, again, he's thinking about the imminent attack of the Babylonians. And he describes himself as somebody trembling with fear as he enters into the darkest trial of his life. And yet his response betrays the most incredible faith. There's really two parts to his response. The first part is this. He waits. He says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He waits. Now what does that mean? It doesn't mean that he just sits there looking at his clock, waiting for time to go by. That's not the kind of waiting that this is describing. What this means is that he is living with an expectant waiting on the promises of God. Look at the verse more carefully. He's not just waiting for time to expire. He's waiting on something. And, And I would submit to you it's that he's waiting on the promises of God. See what he says. He doesn't say that he's waiting for Babylon to come destroy Judah, but rather for the destruction to come on the Babylonians, the people who invade us. So where did he get that information? That yes, even though Babylon is marching into Judah right now to wipe us out, it's not going to be total. It's not going to be final. Someday, The people who are invading us right now are themselves going to be judged. Where did he get that information? Answer, the Lord. And now he's saying, listen, even in the midst of this crisis, where war is imminent, 
and a lot of death and a lot of destruction is going to happen and things are going to get really, really, really bleak right now. He says, in the midst of all of that, I'm choosing to wait for with expectation the promises of God for future deliverance. And this helps us to understand what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is not just like these fuzzy feelings that we have inside. Okay, biblical faith is not just this belief, this wishful thinking out there in something. Biblical faith is us trusting in the promises of God. It's us living right now in the present with an expectant patience that God's promises are actually going to come to pass. So how do you know that you've successfully navigated through a crisis of faith? Because that's where Habakkuk's at in this book. How, How would a person ever know that they had successfully navigated through such a crisis in faith? The answer is this. In the midst of your trial, in the midst of your trial, not after it's done, in the midst of your trial, you are clinging tightly to the promises of God. That's how you would know. That now I am beyond the crisis moment. Now I'm in a position where I've moved beyond that because I am clinging tightly right now in my trial to the promises of God. What promises? Oh, there's so many, family. Promises like this promise of future glory found in Romans 8.18, which tells us, just listen, this is so awesome. It tells us that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or promises of God's good plans, like Romans 8.28, which tells us that we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Or promises of God's unbreakable love like the one found in Romans 8, 38 and 39 where Paul can say, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our promises of new resurrection bodies. When these bodies are falling apart, like we find in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Or finally, promises of a new heaven and a new new earth where everything that is bad and broken in your experience will be banished forever. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Sorry, surfers. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Family, when we go through experiences in our life where we are struggling to connect all the dots, where we're just saying, God, this just does not quite add up. We need to do what Habakkuk's done. We need to take all of that to God in prayer. And as the Lord reveals to us aspects of his plan, even if those things aren't fully satisfying, which they seldom are, We need to get to the place that Habakkuk got to, which is, you know what? At the end of the day, he is seated on his throne in his holy temple. He is ruling and reigning over all of creation, and he is good. And I am going to trust in his plan. I'm going to wait on his promises. But not only did he wait, not only did he cling tightly to the promises of God, the second thing he did, and this is mind-blowing, is he worships. Habakkuk waits, like we just talked about, and he worships. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Wow. This is incredible. I mean, do you see what he's writing here? This is one of the most beautiful descriptions of individual faith in the Old Testament. What Habakkuk describes in these verses is the most desperate of situations. Did you catch that in verse 17? Literally, all of their sources of sustenance sustenance have dried up. He writes, there is no fruit, there is no wine, there is no oil, there is no harvest, there are no animals. We have nothing. Right? Because they got invaded and wiped out by the Babylonians. The Babylonians even though they are going to come in and take away everything and turn my life completely upside down and I have nothing else left, even though that's going to be my reality, look at what he's able to say. Even though everything in my life is falling apart around me, even though nothing is working out for me, verse 18, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now, how in the world does a person, I I can understand how a robot could get here, okay? How does a person like me or you, who has feelings, who feels pain, how can a person get to that place in their life? Where when, again, 
the whole future in front of you is nothing but bleakness and darkness. There is nothing good right in front of you. How can you get to the place where you can find joy when life is miserable? The answer is this. By having a source of joy that is beyond life itself. That's it. And that's why, friends, the sort of joy that is being described in Habakkuk at the conclusion, which is not some glib, just laughing at the party type of joy. No, this is, this is otherworldly kind of joy. And that this is why this kind of joy is only available to the Christian. Because it is a joy that is not located in anything in this life. And, and if your joy, if the source of your joy is something that is in this world, whether it's your health, it's your beauty, it's your money, it's your spouse, it's your children, any of those things, all of those things will be taken from you. Right? All of it will be taken from you at some point. So if my ultimate joy is located in anything in this world, my joy has an expiration date. And when that thing that is providing my joy goes away, I cannot be in the place that Habakkuk is in in this conclusion. The only way to have a resilient, otherworldly joy that is shocking to see, or even to read about is when your joy is connected to something that is outside of and beyond life itself. Isn't that what Habakkuk's connecting his joy to? He says that he rejoiced in who? He rejoiced in who? He rejoiced in the Lord. He will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk's journey through this crisis of faith had the ultimate destination of joy because Habakkuk was connecting his joy. He was anchoring his joy. He was tethering his joy to a source that was beyond life itself, namely God. And because God cannot be taken away and because God is faithful and the promises of God can never, ever, ever fail, Habakkuk could look at his situation and say, even though everything falls apart, even though I have nothing good going on, even though he himself might die at the hands of the Babylonians, he could say, I can still rejoice. I can still take joy in the God of my salvation. You might say, Pastor Daniel, what if I'm having trouble getting there? I would say, that's okay. Habakkuk really struggled too. That's what this whole book's about. But Habakkuk got to this place, and this is the place that we all need to get to. If you're in a crisis right now, you need to get here quick. If, if you're not, then we need to get here before that crisis hits. But he got to this place where he believed three fundamental truths about God. Number one, that God is aware. Number two, that God has a plan. And number three, that God is good. God is aware 
God has a plan and God is good. And guess what? That was enough. And family, if you can believe that, it'll be enough for you too. This knowledge of God means that for Habakkuk, God will make his feet like the deer's, he ends this by saying. He makes me tread on my high places. That's a way of saying that God will preserve me from the attacks of the enemy. And if that was true for Habakkuk, before Jesus ever came to this earth, how much truer is it for you and for me? Friend, life is hard. Amen? Life is hard. We live in a world that is marred by sin. And that means it is a world with almost constant, painful reminders of brokenness everywhere. Reminders like violence and injustice, strife and conflict, sickness and death. And I thank God for books of the Bible like Habakkuk. I thank God that books of the Bible like this don't attempt to sugarcoat human experience. Because then when we hit true crises, we would have nowhere to go. We would have no guidance. Habakkuk does not deny the challenges of trying to maintain our faith in the midst of a perverse and broken world. Instead, it acknowledges those challenges and it offers us a way forward. But here's the kicker. It's not a way forward that removes all the challenges and all of the obstacles. Habakkuk is in the middle of the crisis. So it's not a way forward that removes all the challenges from your life or removes all of the obstacles or removes all of the darkness that you have to walk through. It's not a way forward that neatly answers every question that you have or ties a really pretty bow on top of every hurt that you've experienced. No. That kind of resolution would cause us to love God for what he does more than for who he is. And God would never have it that way. The way offered to you and me in Habakkuk is a way that gives us enough light to take the next step after God. And then enough light to find the footing that we need for the next step after that. It's a slow way forward. It is a painful way forward. It's a way forward in this journey of faith that requires exactly that. It requires us to live by faith and not by sight. And what could be more pleasing to God than that? Hebrews 11.6 reminds us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Translation, that God is aware, that God has a plan, and that God is good. That's the place that we have to get to, to please the Lord, to honor the Lord. A place where we are acknowledging in our heart, I am not, I am not in control of everything. You are, and you are good, and that's enough for me. This is the place that Habakkuk ends up. And family, if this is the place that each of us, by God's grace, can get to, we're going to make it. 
God is going to see us through every challenge, every trial, and every crisis until one day you and I wake up and sin is no more and violence and death are gone and there is only joy forevermore in the presence of God. Amen? Amen. Well, let's close now praying that God would give us enough faith to get through the rest of this day, the rest of this week, and the rest of our lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the wisdom that you give to 